Hello, and welcome to episode four of Soccer Better on Concussion Protocols. If you're new here, I'll explain. When we think of a dictionary definition of soccer, we think soccer, a verb, the act of playing, supporting, managing, or researching the beautiful game. As an example, when we think analytically about the world and the beautiful game, we realize there are many ways that we can all soccer better. We're Liz and Laura Ellen. Between the two of us, we have way too many years of graduate education to be helpful. We decided to journey into the world of critical thinking and the analytical side of all things soccer. Join us as we discover how we can all soccer better. Right. So this week, after a hiatus, because we are busy people and because there's a lot of research and we wanted to do a good job, we're going to be talking about concussion protocols. We're going to try and get an idea about how the current protocols work, what the sports community is doing around concussions, and what suggestions have been made for soccer specifically. And then finally, we're going to give you some of our thoughts on how we can take care of our players and make sure that the beautiful game keeps moving on the field. Um, We're going to get our disclaimers out of the way. So my disclaimer is that there was a lot of research for this episode, but a lot of it revolved around high school and collegiate statistics. So for me specifically, this leads to some concerns that I have that may not be applicable if we were to do our own research and take a survey of the professional clubs. However, as much as I love you and I love this podcast and I love research, I'm not doing it. I'm going to read and report on what's out there, but I'm not going to start my own research. Laurelle, you got any disclaimers this week? I, I don't know that I have disclaimers. I'm, I'll try and keep my disclaimers to a minimum, but I will say as someone who experienced a severe concussion in high school that was related to a car accident and not uh, to sports, um, I just found the research and reading for today's show um, – so incredibly interesting and in a way super validating because I think as we learn more about concussions and as more and more research comes out, um, I think we have begun to realize just how incredibly complex not only concussions are, but then the recovery from concussions is. And so, um, you know, that has made me feel a little bit better, you know, and recovery takes a long time. Like it took me you know, four to five years to fully recover from my concussion. Um, and so I think in a way this was super validating, but it also, to me, just kind of made it that much more important that we have to do something. And I know we're going to talk about that at the very end. What are things that we can do as the soccer community to really protect our players and to really bring this issue even more to the forefront than it already is. And so I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation. And I think the best way to start is to talk about what a concussion is, because I think there are a lot of misnomers out there. So Liz, what is the definition of a concussion? I chose the definition from the Concussion Legacy Foundation. So they define a concussion as a type of traumatic brain injury that's caused by a bump, blow, or jolt to the head, or by a hit to the body that causes the head and brain to move rapidly back and forth. And here's why you should be concerned, not just about when you hit your head, but also when your brain moves rapidly back and forth inside of your skull. And it's because those rapid movements cause your brain tissue to change shape, which can then stretch and damage your brain cells. So something that never occurred to me before I read this um, definition was that your brain is a muscle and we just don't treat it like that when we're talking about recovery. So the things that you would do if you had a torn hamstring or if you had um, injured your, your patella and it had you know, flipped around the wrong side of your leg, you would have these great concerns for the the connective tissue and for how those cells had stretched and been damaged. And we don't have that same concern for your brain, which not only um, is a muscle, but it controls all of your other muscles and can kill you if it's not working properly. So I think that that was a big wake-up call for me is that this is a muscle. And if you think about it that way, I think people may be more willing to do some of the recovery Um, suggestions. I think we also need to talk about the symptoms of a concussion. I knew some of the obvious ones, but there are some in here that weren't as obvious to me. So um, the symptoms, and these can go for, you know, days, weeks, months, years, 
Some of these symptoms are, you know, headaches, you feel like you're in a fog, you have emotional symptoms, so you maybe cry a lot, or you giggle for no reason, or there are a number of things that can affect you emotionally because it depends on what part of your brain has stretched out and been damaged. You could have a loss of consciousness, there may be amnesia, irritability, slowed reaction times, drowsiness, depression. Um, the depression specifically was brought up as something that if you have multiple concussions, this can become chronic and can become a huge issue for your life on top of you know, the amnesia part of it. Um, I think people know how to deal with amnesia better than they know how to deal with depression. Um, you will move clumsily, you forget plays, instructions, scores, and opponents. Um, so those are kind of the things that we needed to consider when we were looking at the word concussion. Laurel, and you said that it took you a while to recover from yours. It took you years. But the typical concussion, how long does it take for someone to recover from that? Yeah, so so we know that um, most concussions, and again, this is within the context of sports, tend to resolve themselves within 7 to 10 days. Other studies say that um, it may take between 10 days and 2 weeks to recover um, from a concussion. And... Uh, I do want to mention, I'm going to mention it several times, so uh, dueling colleagues put out a review of the return to play issues when it comes to sports-related concussions in 2012, um, and so one of the things they talked about is just that it takes a really long time, uh, you know, and 10 days to, to 14 days, two weeks, is a lot longer than I think a lot of us think about. And also when we begin thinking about concussions and definitions to concussions it used to be and i think this is something that at least i thought that it used to be that in order to be diagnosed with a concussion you had to have a loss of consciousness however as we have learned more in science and learned more about the brain we've realized that that isn't necessarily required to have a concussion and so i think that's incredibly important to think about that hey maybe we thought that oh, well, if they didn't lose consciousness, then they definitely didn't have a concussion and they just bumped their head. But what we know now is that concussions and the, and the consequences and symptoms of concussions can happen even if you don't lose consciousness. And I think that's like a really important part to continue to remember. Yeah, the research really, it really showed a lot of things to me. Like I never thought about how um, important it is to rest your mind during recovery. So obviously if you have been diagnosed with a concussion, I knew that you shouldn't be going out and hitting your head against a wall or a ball or another player. Like those things seemed really obvious, but I didn't realize that if you didn't take the appropriate amount of time to turn your brain off and just let it relax, that you would be hindering your recovery and you could be making some of those um, injuries permanent, some of those the cell structure uh, damage permanent. So I really enjoy Shakespeare, but if I have a concussion, I shouldn't read Shakespeare because Shakespeare makes me think. Now maybe I can read one of my like crazy vampire novels because they don't really make me think, they just make <laughs> me giggle. But it, taking that time to really consider is what I'm doing taxing my brain in any way um, for a certain amount of time, that's something that I, I'd never considered. Yeah, and I think especially when we're thinking about athletes who are in school, so high school or collegiate athletes, this becomes incredibly important. And, you know, Doolin and colleagues talk about this idea of cognitive rest. Um, and so they talk about that um, athletes who experience a concussion should have minimal to no, let's think about this, television, cell phone-like interaction, yeah. text messaging, computers, video games, and any electronic visual interferences. That's crazy to think about. Now, that's something that I did do a lot after my concussion. I, lots, I watched a lot of, like, weird movies. I was also on a lot of painkillers, so, you know, I think... Anyway, but <laughs> um, I think I thought they were weirder because of kind of the mental state that my mind was in, but... But I think that's like incredibly important. And they also talk about this guilt that athletes feel going in and saying, hey, I experienced a concussion. Can I have a delay on this exam? Or can I have a delay on this deadline for this paper? Because even if you feel, quote unquote, feel okay, your brain may not be fully recovered yet. And I think that's like, an, that's like such a, a critical component. And I think that's some of the education that's so incredibly needed. Um, and, and so we've talked a lot about how, how many concussions happen, Liz? How often does this actually happen? 
Right. So I think we're just going to, I'm going to try and focus on sports mostly because those are the articles that I read. And so that's the statistics that I have. So the CDC estimates that there are as many as 3.8 million concussions in the U.S. annually through sports and recreational recreational activities. Um, and teenagers are especially vulnerable con- to concussions. And I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure if your brain, I don't think your brain is smaller. I mean, I guess when you're little, I don't know. I just, I don't know exactly why they're more prone to it because I, I would feel like if you're jostled, then you're jostled. But that's a t- statistic. That's the information. Teenagers are more likely to get um, a concussion than someone who is in their, say, 20s or 30s. Um, Cooper, Barnes, and Associates estimate that 59% of collegiate men and 41% of collegiate women who play soccer were diagnosed with a concussion if they played for two seasons. And in their 1998 article uh, called Concussion History in Elite Male and Female Soccer Players for the American Journal of Sports Medicine, they talk about just how prevalent it was for those individuals I also learned through their article that um, if you're younger than 10, there's no great way to determine whether or not you have a concussion. Um, You can have some of the symptoms, but if you don't have them prominently, then they don't have a great baseline for where um, those youths stand uh, mentally. So I think that's very interesting. Yeah. And so I think, you know, certainly this happens a lot in the U.S., Um, and, and so prevalence is incredibly high, but why else is this important? And I think, again, I'm referring back to this Doolin article. I promise I did read other articles other than this one. It's just they did a really great job of kind of reviewing and summarizing all of it, which is excellent to see um, in the literature, but um, that there's also this cultural pressure to return to play. So um, uh, many different articles talked about this, but how athletes want to get back on the field um, there's no like pill or treatment that we know of as of yet that will speed up recovery time for concussions. And so not only are coaches wanting players to get back on the field, which, you know, we can talk about a bit later, but then, you know, organizations want their players to be playing, especially at the professional level, right? If you've paid a lot of money, if you're paying this, this player a lot of money and they get a concussion, you want them to play for your team. And we touched on a similar issue when we had our LGBT issue that there are cultures within teams, within organizations, within a particular sport that can put a lot of pressure on athletes and medical staff to hurry up recovery so a player can get back out on the field. And I think that's just a really, for, for me, as I was reading this, that was like a really important thing that, that I kept, that kept coming back to me was like, not only is this like the biomedical side of things and, and the psychological side of things when it comes to depression and mental health, but there's also the social side of things that there are just these pressures to say like, no, no, I don't have a headache. No, no, like I'm not feeling depressed, you know, that I'm, that I'm not exhibiting these symptoms. Um, and so I think thinking about education and ways to, to combat that um, is so important. It also just highlights that we like don't know a lot about the brain and how it works and how the recovery of the brain works, which I think um, is just like something else that's like kind of sad, but also it's exciting. There's so much area for research. I'm not a neuroscientist, so like I'm not the person (laughs) to be doing this, Um, but I think we as fans and as kind of people in the world can encourage more science, more funding for science to really address some of these issues. Yeah, I think that the what we don't know is very interesting because I always thought that if you got a concussion and then got more concussions, your um, symptoms and your issues would just compound upon each other no matter what. Like, that was the end-all, be-all. And in reading some of this, there's the, there's the possibility and even a probability that your brain will recover and get you back to baseline, which we'll talk about later so you'll understand. But you'll get back to baseline and you will be, you'll be where you were. There's that, if you just take that time. So even if someone says, oh yeah, I've had a hundred concussions in my life, they don't, it doesn't have to mean what everyone thinks it means now, which is, you know, the stuff based off of uh, the concussion movie and hiding things and severe depression and having to donate your brain to science so they can see the lesions on your brain because no one gave you that time. No one gave you that support. 
Um, it just, it really changes the possibilities if we, um, if we take the time to really heal. All right, so now that we've been talking about uh, some of the things that we've learned and how, let's, let's talk about how we learned them. So um, the Journal of Athletic Training put out an article in 2009. Also, can I just say, I love how timely all of these were because it's been such a big issue. So like for this one, we had a lot of research that had taken place more, much more recently. And, and don't look at me and tell me 2009 isn't recent because it is, and I won't talk about how old I am. All right, so the article was titled um, Immediate Post-Concussion Assessment and Cognitive Testing, which is called IMPACT, Practices of Sports Medicine Professionals. And I think that they had really great advice um, for best practices concerning concussion uh, recognition and treatment. They probably had really great advice because they want you to use their tool, but I'm okay with that because I think that it was practical. Also, IMPACT is something that was mentioned in the majority of the other articles. So quite frankly, um, that says a lot to me that it, it's something that could be used and, and should be used properly. So they believe that assessment and treatment should consist of a clinical examination, completion of self-reported systems check or symptom checklist, and then uh, an assessment after the event and neurocognitive testing. So they, they have a really complete plan that they wanna talk about as far as um, how to handle concussions. The article was really the first time that I learned about the need for the baseline, which we talked about um, moments ago um, during pre-injury and then getting multiple tests afterwards to determine how much you recovered if you recovered completely and returned to that baseline. So a baseline is a test um, that takes a little bit longer. It can take um, a couple of hours to get done properly because it involves a number of things. It's a more detailed assessment um, that an athlete should take every one to two years. They should take it probably every year if they are um, younger. So the younger you are, the more you should take it because your brain's just changing so much. And it'll include information about um, performance areas such as um, your ability to pay attention, your memory, how well you concentrate, how well you process information, and your reaction times. So all of the things are put together so that when you uh, have a concussion, you can be asked the same kinds of questions, and it won't be a two-hour test. They can do it in seven to ten minutes, and they can say, okay, we're going to ask you one from each of these, and if you don't answer in the same time period or in the same way, like if you're super emotional about it and you get really angry when you didn't before, they can say, you know what, you're not, your brain is not functioning normally. Um, so this is the part where I get really upset. If you don't have a baseline test to compare athletes results to, then they use average information that's just based on age and gender. But they know that these baselines have a huge variance that are based on your education level, your history of concussion, your race is a big deal, uh, and your acculturation, which is how much you've assimilated into a culture. And they don't have alternate like variations. I think it would be hard to do a lot of these variations, but they have zero variations for those things. So they're just like, oh, how old are you? And what's your sex? And that's what we're going to... So anyone who doesn't have these baselines, if if there's a real risk of having a concussion, I find it so frustrating. Um, had you ever... I know you played sports. So had you ever done any kind of baseline testing? Not, not at all. And I think this is something that even... You know, I thought about this earlier as I was, you know, reading this article. But even as you were talking, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, I need to call my, like, my high school's, like, athletic department and be like, hey, are you doing baseline assessments for all your athletes? And that's something I want to find out from, like, the teams I follow also, like, the soccer teams I follow. Are they doing baseline assessments? Because not only is it about does a baseline assessment, assessment exist, yes or no, but it's also about the accuracy of that assessment. So, those assessments take a lot of time. They're resource intensive. You have to have someone who is trained and qualified to actually do this, right? But then it needs to be done, like like you said, probably every year, especially for, I would say, for professional athletes to make sure that they're not missing anything. 
And, you know, especially in the leagues I follow, there are people from all over the world with all kinds of backgrounds who are playing in these leagues. And so if you're not actually doing baseline assessments, you can't just compare it to like a standardized response to like, okay, these are the quote unquote benchmarks for where people should be scoring because that isn't helpful. That isn't like, that doesn't reflect anything and you're going to miss so much of the nuance, which kind of makes your concussion protocols and your you know post-concussion assessments worthless because if you're not actually measuring what you want to measure then like what's the point in actually doing it yeah but this this also Liz I just got like so I was like why aren't we doing this and blah blah you know I was just I got so upset because I'm like okay this is something that can be prevented like not preventative like because it won't prevent a concussion from happening but it can so much better inform how severe the concussion is, you know, is there a concussion, um, you know, and then what components of the, the you know, um, athletes like memory or concentration or reaction were affected by that concussion. And so recovery can focus on that. But if we don't have a baseline, then none of it matters. It doesn't matter, Liz. None of it matters anymore. <laughs> okay. It, it does matter. <laughs> But you brought us some other some other information. So we have more statistics about the training revolved around um, this impact program. So people, and this was everyone self-reporting. And of course, it's anonymous. But I hope that then impact went in and be like, you guys said you were going to do this. So um, there was a 94% completion in the cases um, that they looked at. But only half of them went through the extra work to make sure that the uh, original assessments were accurate. And here's why that happened. This is the exact reason that happened. Because the people who were responsible for the assessments, only half of them had even taken any kind of impact training. So they were downloading the tool and being like, oh yeah, I can ask these questions. And guys, the questions are very simple. They seem very straightforward. But if you don't go to training... And it, it's like a webinar. It's not even intensive all-day training, like just the basic training. No one, half the people hadn't done that. And more importantly, only 20% of the trainers who were responsible for analysis of the results had attended any kind of training. And it blew my mind. I know that resources are limited. I know that we don't do bupkis for our teachers. But oh my God. It's so much worse than I thought. This is what happens when you're not going to be a teacher and you don't plan on having children. These things pass you by. Guys, this is a big issue. Um, and like, it just, it really worried me that, that this had happened. Yeah. Well, and I think for me, you know, it also, it's like, yes, these assessments are great and they can be based on amazing science and that's awesome, right? And and the science and development of these protocols is incredible. But if we're not actually implementing this stuff correctly in the real world, if we're not disseminating this information accurately in an, and in a way that athletic trainers who, you know, may have, you know, a college degree but may not have any additional um, training in assessments and tools and things – if we're not communicating this information clearly and in a way that they can understand, then it, you know, then the, the research and the tools don't have the, the vigor and the life in them that they could have. And I think, you know, you've, this, this is repeating everything you've said, but I just, I, I think it is such a shame that um, we don't care or, or we're not doing more specifically for athletes and, and for the people that care for them to make sure that they're equipped with the information and training that they need to um, you know, protect the minds of not only high schoolers and folks in college, but then also our professional athletes. And with so many um, teenagers going and playing professional ball, if, if they aren't if that's not taken into consideration and they're treated like everybody else are treated like one of their colleagues who is in their, you know, early or mid twenties, it's, you need to be cognizant that they need to be treated differently because they are going to have um, a different amount of injuries, different kinds of injuries based on the way that this muscle is developing. So I think 
that it it just it spans the whole breadth of it and I really hope that if I had done additional research, I would find that the pro teams don't have the same kind of lacking. I will say that um, I did talk to one player and he did get regular baseline testing and it was implemented whenever, and this was just because I'm a sports fan, like, you know, that's how it worked. Um, I just brought it up because I could. And he did get regular testing against that baseline before he was allowed to return to play. Um, and he seemed very shocked that the about these statistics. Now that doesn't. I didn't ask the trainers whether or not they'd gone through any kind of training for whatever software or protocol they decided to use. So um, that could still be a problem. So even if he got this baseline testing done, I don't know that the people who were determining his baseline and then were testing against it were qualified to do so. More than just having you know their degree, and I'm sure they're very good at their jobs, but this is something differently. This is something additional that they deserve to have training on. They deserve to feel comfortable with it. So um, that's kind of where we stand with some of the problems um, that we saw with getting to figure out how to make sure that um, we can recognize the concussions properly. And I was glad to say that there were plenty of articles talking about what should we do um, to address this problem. So I don't think anyone uh, would say that there aren't concussions or that there aren't numerous concussions. And then we can be concerned about them because they do affect a player's life down the road. Um, I'm surprised how many concussions there are in general. I didn't think that the percentage would be that high, but... What, like, what are we going to do about that? How can we um, address those issues? And in November of 2008, the third International Conference on Concussions in Sports, didn't know that was a thing, find it delightful, was held in Zurich. And they put out a consensus statement with some really like base ideas, like nothing that you can um, say this is how we're going to change the rules, but things that you should do for the players, which I think is really great that this is like player focus, first of all. So you need to provide adequate time and facilities for assessments to occur. Um, And this seems to me really like the low-hanging fruit, like just try. It's just, it's really the basics. And if a player is returned to play after an initial assessment, you need to do more, do a more thorough examination after the game to ensure that no symptoms have developed. So I thought if you had a concussion that you would be symptomatic immediately. Um... Laura Ellen, I mean, I assume because you're, you were in a car accident, like you were symptomatic immediately, but did you have that same thought? Like, did you know that they could develop later or you could have additional symptoms? No, I didn't. Well, and I think that, yeah, I I didn't realize that. And I think, um, you know, although it does make, make sense to a degree, right? Like, um, you know, additional symptoms. And, And I think, and, and this is just, me guessing here i i wasn't able to find this in any of the the articles but i i do wonder if some of the more like depressive symptoms or you know even like manic symptoms like some of those kinds of things take a little bit longer to develop that there you know immediately there would be like a loss of consciousness or kind of you know forgetting what's happening on the field around you or forgetting plays and things but some of the, the other things like the depression and, and some of those kinds of symptoms, my guess would have a have a later onset. Um, but right, yeah, which, is, which was hours and not days. So we're not saying that you need to okay be aware is not what I want to say. You definitely need to be aware, but that you can't you shouldn't expect that three days later all of a sudden you're going to find that everything is funny. I mean, that, that is a much bigger issue. You definitely need an MRI, go to a neurologist. Like that's not just a concussion, but hours later you could develop some things. I think that you're right. It's probably the emotional things. So they suggested that you have a graduated return to play protocol that takes a minimum of seven days to complete because each of these steps should be completed. And then you wait 24 hours, um, before you give the next, test and you can't give the next test you can't go on to the next step unless um, they're at their baseline uh, and they're asymptomatic uh, with the previous one so the first one is just complete physical and cognitive rest so luckily a lot of um, concussions will spontaneously resolve themselves like your brain is this wonderful machine is this wonderful muscle that does these delightfully amazing things that no one understands yet someday maybe 
And um, it may be that after that uh, complete physical and cognitive rest, like you can, re- you could return to your baseline, but that's the first step. That's the first thing that you need to do. After that, you can do light aerobic activity. And if that doesn't trigger any symptoms, you can do some sports spe- specific activities followed by no contact training, contact training drills, and then full contact practice. And then finally, if you've passed all of those at your baseline, you can return to play. I think um, it's very important to remember that all of these exams, all of their results should be baseline without any kind of assistance. So it can't be, oh yeah, I met my baseline because I was taking um, an antidepressant that I don't normally take. If you normally take it, then that's your part of your baseline. But I got this new antidepressant to deal with the issue that evolved and now I'm at baseline. You're not at baseline because you're on this drug. So if you were recovering from a broken leg, you wouldn't say, oh yeah, I'm back to normal because my leg doesn't hurt as long as I take Vicodin every four hours. Like it's that kind of thing. So I think that it's really important um, to remember that kind of stuff. The next piece, Laura Ellen, is ideas. It is people's articles. Just can you give us a break? Can you can you tell us some things about some of our sponsors? Oh my goodness, I would love to give all of us a break because my head is just overwhelmed by just what a big issue this is. And what a better thing to talk about than roughneck scarves? Roughneck scarves would make my head feel better. I should I should have brought my scarf with me from Roughneck Scarves. And we are so incredibly thankful for the generosity of Roughneck to ourselves here at Soccer Better and also uh, to BGN, which is the network that we belong to. And, you know, it's still a little warm, at least here in Pittsburgh where we're recording right now. Fall hasn't fully hit us yet, but that's okay. I will still happily wear my team scarf, especially, especially if it's from Roughneck Scarves. So, Check them out. They are the official scarf supplier to the MLS, USL, and US Soccer. And you can get custom scarves for your group. Maybe we should get Soccer Better scarves. You can get custom scarves for your group or team at roughneckscarves.com. So thank you, thank you to Roughneck for their sponsorship of our show and our network. And for our mental health break. Because this is hard work. All right. Back into the fray. Now we have people who have ideas about how um, we can implement some some better protocols. So I think everyone has kind of heard about the new possible um, concussion protocol for the USL. I'm going to quote a lot from Jeff Carlisle, who wrote an article, Has the USL Found the Way Forward in Soccer's Concussion Problem? Because he, does, he discusses um, the rule for handling concussions during the game day situations. So this new rule, um, it proposes allowing teams to have a temporary substitute who would take the place of a player with a possible concussions, um, which would allow that injured player to be properly assessed. So if the injured player doesn't return to play in a set amount of time, which they're guessing will be between five to 10 minutes because that's where most of the protocols find that their initial testing takes, then that temporary sub would become a permanent sub and remove one of the team's total substitutions. So for USL specifically, if you had to make that a permanent sub, then you would only have two left. You wouldn't get a fourth person um, to play. But if you had used all three subs, I think that if you had a possible concussion, that fourth person could still come on. Now, they couldn't stay after the 10 minutes. If it's decided that that person has to be removed, then you go down, down the man. But you would never... Um, unnecessarily lose a person just to complete a, a protocol. And I think that's kind of great. But what does it mean for your bench? And does it really mean anything um, as far as coaches planning? Because I guess they plan for injuries, but they also plan with what they want to happen. Um, Laura Ellen, what do, you, what do you think about the proposed rule? Yeah, I thought this was... I, I don't know. I, I think... You know, and I think there are other, and we'll get into them, but there are other um, proposed or at least ideas that have been thrown out. I think this is a really good start. And I think 
um, the USL, which is the, the second division here in the US, um, that the USL would be making like a big step forward by having this. And I think the, the, only, the, the thing that I think I'm the most concerned about is having it be limited to 10 minutes. And, you know, certainly, right, like there are 45 minute halves. You couldn't have, I guess it like wouldn't be a good idea to like have, like if you had used all three of your subs, someone gets a concussion, they come out for like 20 minutes and you like that whole time you have a te your temporary, like quote unquote temporary sub on the field, you know, and then it turns out that that player does have a concussion and you go down to 10 men. Right, so I, I don't know, like I think there are kind of these components to it that, and, and it's a balance, right? Because I want a proper assessment to be done, which I, you know, yes, most of the things I've said, it read is that like, it's like a minimum of 10 minutes for a proper assessment to be done. Now, is that gonna be like a hard and fast 10 minutes that the fourth official is gonna be like, and you're off the field and clock starts now, or is it approximate 10 minutes? Like, okay, let's get this protocol finished so we can actually figure out what's going on. So, so I think that's kind of where my, where my hesitation comes in. I think it's a really great first step. And I haven't really seen many other leagues actually have something in writing that they're putting forth that they've submitted for consideration to, to add to their leagues. And so I think from that perspective, I really commend the USL for actually doing something about this and not just kind of like having these like, yes, you know, we're concerned about player safety, blah, 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 but they're actually doing something. So I, so I think that's really great. Right. So the resolution was proposed um, two years after there was a symposium about head injuries that was conducted by the U.S. Soccer Federation and the MLS, but the MLS isn't implementing it. So we're just better than them, obviously throwing it out there um there's been a formal application to the international football association board for implementation but as you pointed out there is still a lot that needs to be decided so what are the protocol standards if they're the current standards then 10 five minutes absolutely is insufficient for the current standards because they haven't anticipated this kind of situation 10 minutes seems to be the minimum but at a 45 minute half that's that's a chunk of time and and if it's longer than that I just I feel like that's untenable personally but that may be me being old and rabble rousing so who knows um is there any technology that could assist with this on-field diagnosis to shorten that period of time if there isn't currently who's going to develop it I know some developers maybe I'll talk to them um what will the time frame be for the substitution what space will each field have to make available for these tests? And I think that's a big question because a lot of these fields, um, and this is across all leagues, they just vary greatly with how much space is there between the sideline and like the stands. Um, is there an area where you can do something? Because if you have to judge their reaction time, like if you're tossing them a ball, do you have space to do that? Like how are you doing those types of things? Who gets to make the decision? Is it the team doctor, an independent doctor? Um, if you're using an independent doctor, who's responsible for paying for that doctor? What kind of qualifications do they have to have? I'm really biased because I'm in Pittsburgh, and so we have a great um, concussion facility. And, you know, lots of people have come here. Lots of famous people have come here. I'm sure you've seen all the commercials. It's just delightful. But so I'm like, oh, yeah, let's get one of them. And then my brain goes, how much would that cost? How prohibitive is that? Well, do it anyways, right? Let's make it as good as possible. Probably not um, the best answer. Um, so going back to the, the doctor who was doing the assessment, there are arguments for and against it being the team doctor. And Laura, I'd love to know what you think about it. Um, do you go with someone who knows the player better? Um, do you really want that neutral doctor who may not be holding to the coach or may not feel like he has to appease this player that he has to see on a daily basis? Um, and then how much training do they need to have either in neuroscience specifically, or do we just want to worry about the protocol that's being implemented? Where do you think this doctor question lands? Yeah, I think this was something that um, I've been thinking a lot about as I read and have uh, thought more about this protocol specifically 
And it's one of those things that like, okay, if you have an independent doctor, but it's the same independent doctor for the home team for the entire season, then that quote unquote independent doctor game over game becomes less independent, right? Because they're interacting more with the home coaches and the home facility, right? And so even if they are kind of separate from the team, it it may, like there may still be bias to their decision. Again, even if there is like a neutral doctor, and you have the coach being like, is he okay? Is he okay? Two minutes later, is he okay? Right? Like, there's a lot of, like, societal pressure. There's power dynamics at play that, you know, there may be, like, doctors who be like, nope, this is my patient. Leave me alone. Or, you know, physicians who feel, like, some kind of pressure from the coach or the official to, like, hurry up with the assessment. So I think it's just a really – it's so complex. And I don't – I – and the more I think about it, the more like complexities I think about and that I just can't come up with a decision, which is why I'm not the one making this decision. Um, but I do think, you know, regardless of who it is, I do think there needs to be a very clear standard for training. There needs to be continuing education for the protocols. Um, I think it should be the state of the art protocol, you know, whether that's the impact protocol or not, but it needs to be the most recent and the the top assessment tool that we have access to that's also feasible because this isn't just the usl championship that they're proposing it for but they're proposing it for league one and league two also which are its second third and fourth division and so the resources become increasingly limited as soon as you start going down the divisions and so what is a strategy that can be put in place that can protect players on one hand, but it's also feasible on the other hand. And, and so um, I don't have a good answer for you. Do you have a good answer? <laughs> I think someone smarter than us should decide. That's there my answer. That's a great answer. Oh, thanks. Okay, so I have one last article. Um, it is from Vishal Kaptel, and I included this one because – he was very sarcastic, and it spoke to my heart. By the time that I got to his article, um, one of his quotes was, so what should FIFA do? And he's like, basically anything. <laughs> like, oh. Let's just say, what should soccer do? Basically anything. And it just it made me very happy. So he is seemingly unconvinced that any protocol um, would make a difference uh, for the general concussion issue. Based on his article, FIFA's rule change won't solve soccer's concussion problem. And he points out that there are current concussion protocols and they don't involve any kind of like impact assessment or those kinds of things, but just things you're supposed to do when there's a possible protocol. Head-to-head contact being the most um, obvious thing. And they're not followed during game day. So if we're not doing it now, what makes you think anyone's going to do it in the future? especially for a new rule that's more onerous. You're not wrong, Vishal. You're not wrong. Uh, So FIFA's rules allow for the referee to stop the game for up to three minutes for an assessment. And he points out that um, this is just not sufficient time to determine whether or not someone has a concussion based on the current protocols that are available, the current assessments that are available to the world at large. Um, his suggestions ranged from FIFA having more funding and are f- putting forth more funding so there could be additional research for how to manage concussions, like soccer specifically, how to make sure that we get, maybe that we get those assessment times down based on what are like the top three things that we have to know or um, what kind of technology can we evolve in it. Um, or he's like, you know what, let's just not have headers. It's not going to solve all the problems, but if you can't hit it with your head, you're not jumping, you're not leading with your head. Um, there, I'm sure there's a wide variety of responses to his criticisms and proposals. I just, he made me happy when I read his article, and so I had to include him. Yeah, no, I thought he was interesting. And, you know, also just to point out, so he's a, a physician, which um, I thought was like, a good perspective that I don't know that, um, you know, we've heard before and, and Liz and I, neither of us are physicians. Um, and so I think there's a definitely a different perspective there, but yeah, I, I read his article and I was like, Oh, he's a little salty about all of this. And like, I can appreciate that he, 
you know, is frustrated and is kind of putting his his voice out there. Um, but yeah, and I think that, you know, I think that his article just like very much, at least from my perspective, just was like, okay, this is a clear lead in to what we as fans and we as kind of the general public can do to soccer better when it comes to concussion protocols. So Liz, how can we soccer better? Yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to limit my thoughts. A because we've established I'm not as smart as I could be in this area and once I start thinking about all of the issues, I get very overwhelmed and making a decision uh, usually I'm really good at it and here I'm just like I don't know, there are so many questions and there just aren't enough answers for me. So for me, I think we just we need to do something. We have this proposed rules for the USL after two years after a report came out and now it's just being proposed and I don't know how long they're going to take to review it. It was proposed very frustratingly with, I think, no idea about some of the specifics. Like they didn't have like a rough outline. Like you don't even have, you know, a square and a triangle on top of it. So you're like, oh, this is a house. You've just got like sticks thrown at you and been like concussion protocol what do you think um it doesn't have to be perfect though right like just get some ideas be like we think these are the best practices it doesn't have to be perfect if you keep going to committee and you keep running papers and you're never doing anything then you're part of the problem you're not resolving anything you just keep saying guys there's a problem and our players are getting injured and we're leading them down this path of you know chronic depression great what are you going to do about it and I think that's you've said like this is where we can be involved we can say that this matters Um, I know that there are some players unions that have said this is matters to them and they've been involved and very vocal and wanting to get something in place so let's support those players let's ask them you know if there's anything we can do for them Um, and then it just even if the first rule doesn't work or even if part of it doesn't work it doesn't mean that you're stuck with it so obviously soccer has been around for a hot minute lots of rules have changed but like one thing that they tried was the golden goal and they tried i listen i thought this was fake not the golden goal i know what that is like you know football i've watched regular american football i know what the golden goal is but i read an article and they were like oh yeah they tried to do that in soccer from 1992 through 2004 and i was confused so the golden goal is if you have to go into overtime which you don't very often in soccer, but if you have to go into overtime, the first team to score the goal wins the game because that's your golden goal. What? I've never seen this happen in any of the playoffs. So obviously they tried it. It really didn't work. They didn't use it. And they've gone back to other things for figuring out how to end games when um, when there's a tie or when you have, when you have to win. Um, so I just, please do something. Get it in place. Start. Get, get that bare minimum house up there and then we can add columns and windows and a chimney and we can make it wonderful. Um, where What do you think we should do, Laurel? And where should we start? Yeah, so a couple of the articles talked about different policies um, that exist either at the state or federal or organizational level. So we've talked about how the USL um, is has proposed a policy um, and, uh, you know, organizations like FIFA and the MLS could propose policies, um, but they really haven't to date um, that we've talked about. They, um, there, were, there are several other, right, like the NFL here in the U.S., they have a concussion protocol policy. The NHL has, a, you know, all of these other leagues have these policies um, and ways to address concussion protocols, flawed or not, right? But at least they have something. Right, and, and I think they're evolving them. They take time to evolve them. Exactly. They change regularly. Yeah, so so that's kind of like an organizational policy. But then also from a legislative side of things, states have worked to develop guidelines uh, for concussion protocols and education for um, uh, you know, especially I, I think this is definitely more at like the high school and the youth level. But you know, education for parents and athletes. 
Um, now, the degree to which these have been effective, um, you know, nothing we read really talked about that. My guess is they're not super effective, but at least it's something, right? Um, I believe there was a federal commission in 2012 that heard testimony about the effects of concussions. I wasn't able to find that they actually did anything to address, which isn't surprising uh, considering the federal government. I mean, that was nine years ago now. Um, but I think there are policies that are beginning to make a difference. I know, you know, places like California have a lot more rigorous um, state level legislation that's being put in place. And I think, again, this is where our voices matter as fans of soccer, as fans of humans who play sports, right? We want to do things to make sure that they're protected. And I think it, it seems from, from my reading and just kind of my perusing of what's out there that that soccer as a sport is so far behind when it comes to these concussion protocols, um, especially in our professional leagues. And so I think this is really the opportunity where we have a chance to say, okay, we need to do something about this and we should have done it yesterday, but okay, that's fine. Let's do it today and let's figure out what works best for soccer, what keeps our players safe, what keeps the game moving, but also at the end of the day, what is not going to result in like such chronic, chronic um, debilitating um, consequences for these players. Um, and so, yeah, that's what right. I feel. We need to like do something. I'm ready I, to act. Right. And, and I think that, um, like I said, you know, earlier, like, let's just ban headers, you know, and like I scoffed at it. And I, I don't think that that's where this is going. I like to think that I'm kind of progressive. I like to think that I'd get behind a lot of ideas. But if you're a young whippersnapper and you're a go-getter and you've got you've got statistically great ideas, don't let someone who's old like me stop you just because I'm a curmudgeon and I complain. It's always going to happen. Um, if if you have the stats behind it and you push it through and people are actually healthier, A, I will get over it most likely because the game keeps playing. And B, you'll be on this earth longer than me and you'll enjoy the game when I'm long and gone because you know you've done something amazing. And no one will even remember when my crotchety old self was like, I can't believe you kids have added three more minutes to my game. So don't let us stop you. I think with that impression of old me, I'm, I'm done. I think we're going to end this. Um, so we wouldn't be here without our lovely host, the Beautiful Game Network. BGN covers teams across the MLS, USL Championship, USL League One, and they even have some EPL information for you, which has started back up, so it's even more pertinent. Check out their podcast and written content at bgn.fm. You can follow us and you can give us feedback via Twitter uh, we're at BGN Soccer Better. And then please head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, or wherever you may listen to podcasts and push that subscribe button. If you're feeling super generous, you can go ahead and give us a review. One star because you didn't like my impression. Five stars because you liked it. Do what makes you happy. Uh, we can't wait to hear from all of you. And we can't wait to keep learning how to soccer better together. Bye. 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 And bye everybody else. Thank you.